Welcome to PageCast, a podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers, aimed to give you the story behind the story. By interviewing the authors responsible for some of your most loved books, we explore the thoughts, ideas, emotions, and creative processes that led to the writing of these books. If you're a reader with a zesty interest in people and stories, do stick around and enjoy what PageCast has to offer. Girl A by Abigail Dean Lex Gracie doesn't want to think about her family. She doesn't want to think about growing up in her parents' house of horrors. She doesn't want to think about her identity as Girl A, the girl who escaped, the eldest sister who freed her older brother and four younger siblings. It's been easy enough to avoid her parents. Her father never made it out of the house of horrors he created, and her mother spent the rest of her life behind bars. But when her mother dies in prison and leaves Lex and her siblings the family home, she can't run from her past any longer. What begins as a propulsive tale of escape and survival becomes a gripping psychological family story about the shifting alliances and betrayals of sibling relationships, about the secrets our siblings keep from ourselves and each other, who have each of these siblings become. How do their memories defy or galvanize Lexi's own? As Lex pins each sibling down to agree to her family's final act, she discovers how potent the spell of their shared family mythology is, and who among them remains in its thrall and who has truly broken free. Author of Girl A, Abigail Deem, will be chatting to Cape Talk radio host Pippa Hutton about her debut novel, Girl A. Thanks for tuning in. Hello to everybody joining us tonight. Great to have you with us and uh, really pleased to be here tonight. Uh, as I just said to Abigail a few minutes ago, this feels like a, a, a guilty second helping because we chatted on my radio show a week or so ago and it didn't feel like 20 minutes was enough. So really happy to have the chance to get back into a deeper conversation. Abigail, and thank you so much for joining us this evening. Welcome. No, thanks so much. Um, so much, Pepper, and it's great to be here chatting to everyone today as well. Really, really great. So thank you for having me. I just want to say I know that uh, load shedding has thrown a bit of a spanner in the works for many people tonight, so um, we might lose some of the audience halfway through. We might gain a new tranche of audience halfway through. Abigail does know what load shedding is, everybody, so she understands the unique situation we're in. And uh, let's hope we uh, we can make it through the hour or so without any power cuts affecting us. Um you heard the introduction from Jennifer describing this as the biggest fiction debut of the year. If you've read any reviews of Girl A, you've probably seen or heard some kind of reference to it's the next Gone Girl or Girl on a Train. It is the big psychological thriller of the year, the one that's destined for the bestseller lists, for the screen thereafter. Um, it's the 10th of March, maybe a little premature to be calling Book of the Year, but it's certainly on track. I mean, you're in the bestseller lists already, Abigail, only a few weeks after launch, and Sony has already acquired the screen rights. My first question to you is, what kind of pressure comes with that kind of pre-publicity? Um, it's, it's strange because obviously I think there is there is some. Um, and I think one, one of the oddest things is that you go from writing in kind of complete isolation, really, um, for years. And from, I guess for me, um, for years and years, like, you know, since, um, since I was a sort of kid, I've been enjoying writing. And, you know, I was writing fan fiction as a teenager and, so for years, you're, you're doing this thing, um, I guess, sort of, for me, quite secretively. Um, you know, I, I was actually sort of very sensitive about my writing and um, I, I really didn't like to share it with people. I, I was the person like covering the screen, you know, when relatives came into the room. Um, so I think that to go from that to um, even the idea of people reading Girl A is to me sort of still, I mean, I was, at first it was quite unsettling, this idea that, you know, that there would be readers. That that was something that I hadn't had for the for the last like, kind of 25 years of writing. Um, so I, I think, to be honest, the pressure is just about kind of, um, j just about surmounted by the, um, by the sort of joy uh, of that. And, 
you know, the idea that, you know, I've been obsessed with this story and with these characters for a number of years now. And so the idea that, you know, readers are going to develop their own relationships with those characters mm-hmm. and they're going to get to know the story, that I think is such a pleasure um, and such a privilege that it, it kind of overrides the pressure just, just about just <laughs> not to labor the point, but I think we need to talk a little bit about the road to publication because there are not too many debut novelists who end up seeing their manuscripts come to print at all, let alone seeing it the center of a nine-way bidding war between publishing houses. And I'm sure there are at least a few aspiring writers in the audience tonight who would love to know a little bit more about how that happened. You say you've been writing since childhood. Um, I know that you took a sabbatical from your legal work that you had this sort of moment of of going, I need to do it now. And you took some time off to sketch the outline of the book, but it's a long leap from that to where you are now. Can you just talk to us a little bit about that process from sitting down with a pen on that first day of sabbatical to to the bidding war? Yeah, of course. Um, and so I, I took the sabbatical and, and I guess it was kind of a sabbatical. It was kind of, to, to, in reality, I left my... Um, job in a law firm entirely so so I I kind of quit and left that behind um, and gave myself three months Uh, and I think I had very very grand um, grand delusions about completing the novel in that time which did not it didn't happen (laughs) obviously (laughs) three months is not very I look I look back and I'm like well what were you thinking what was I thinking? Um, so yeah, like you know, what, 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 very, very arrogant plan to, to, to be honest. So um, I, I got about a third of the way, you know, sort of a third, maybe edging towards halfway, um, and then it was kind of another nine months of work while I was working as a as a lawyer at Google, and but I think in reality, I'm I'm kind of prouder of that nine months because it, it was simply harder um it was it was the evenings and the weekends um when sometimes you just don't feel like writing you, you feel like lying on the sofa watching netflix like without a doubt um, it would be the preferred yeah. activity and so, so i think that was the time that it, it, it was very very tough um and that was the sort of i i almost don't remember writing um some of the second half of the novel um I'm not quite sure how, how it happened <laughs> to, to, be, to be honest but it was mostly just perseverance and sort of just snippets of time um and trying to use you know trying not to be precious about about how or where I wrote or in what conditions but but just to try to get the words um down mm. um so I, I had a first draft by um by kind of the I guess spring of 2018 I think I'm gonna know 2019 spring of 2019 I think um I'm probably gonna get all my dates wrong I think no 2018 spring of 2018 (laughs) and um I I then did one really big edit myself um and after um after that kind of massively focused edit um I sent it off to agents um, and I researched agents really by looking at, um, I looked at the bookseller um, in the UK, you know, kind of announcing um, announcing recent deals to see kind of which agents that represented books that were similar um, to Girl A. Um, I, yeah, I, I looked at sort of, um, I actually looked in the acknowledge pages of some of uh, my favorite books and some books that I thought were similar to Girl A to see who, you know, which agents were thanked there. I think that's always a really good tip um, <laughs> that, that I kind of, I think I picked up in a blog post somewhere. Um, and yeah, to just sent it, sent it off and hoped for the best really. Uh, and I got, I think there were sort of five or six agents and I got a few rejections as is, completely inevitable for for seventy to agents. Um, and, um, but there were three agents who were interested. Um, and that in itself, I think, was a sort of bit of a moment of realisation that, okay, this might happen. You know, it's still very, very distant. You know, still, it's not like getting a publishing deal, but it, it gets you that little bit closer. 
Um, and the reason I decided to go with Juliet, um, who is, is my agent, was because she actually felt that the novel needed considerable work. And she had um, really fantastic editorial ideas for how it could be made better. Um, so even after signing with Juliet, um, there was another four or five months of intense editing that we then did um, before it went out to any publishing houses. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I just I liked the idea that the novel was imperfect because that was how I felt too. And I, I think that anybody who is very willing to give you criticism, that, that's a good start to, to a very frank relationship with your agent, which I think is what it has to be. Hmm. I mean, that's such hugely important advice because a lot of people feel very protective of their work and, you know, you pour heart and soul into writing what you think is your story finished, end of sentence, and then to have somebody pick it apart is soul-destroying for some people. But it sounds like you're really good at at, at looking for the constructive elements of, of criticism. Uh, clearly it worked because here you sit uh, with, with multi-figure deals to your name on both sides of the Atlantic. You've got a, a, a deal with Sony with regards to screenwriters that we'll speak about a bit later. But it, there still must have been that moment of, of having to birth it into the world and then let other people pick up the baby what did that feel like to finally sit back and know it's in print it's gone on sale it's now out of my hands and into the hand of the reader it felt like quite a gradual thing I think because because I remember chatting to um to my partner about this and you know when the when Girl A first went out to publishers I had the sudden strange sense that I no longer knew um, who was reading it. And I remember saying to him, like, you know, it's just quite strange because I feel like there's lots of people now who are reading it. So I don't even know who they, who these people are, <laughs> like very indignantly. <laughs> um, and he said to me, well, I think if this goes well, you might have to get used to that. <laughs> and, you know, I, I actually think there is a great, um, a great pleasure in kind of for me that being the end of of the story you know that once the, the novel is printed um there's a sort of freedom in the characters no longer belonging to to me and um I, I feel very very strongly about um about books and about reading that the author does not have any great authority you know to say to have certain views on their character you know, I, I think it's very much that your view is is as justified as any reader's view. That that's kind of always been my mm. attitude to to sort of criticism and and, and to, to literary analysis in general. Um, so so I kind of think it's wonderful that you know I, I've managed to you know that, that the, the characters are out there and people will love them and detest them and hearing that is just the best. Like that, you know, I think hearing people's reactions to the story is um, is fantastic and and it kind of is now like a shared piece of art and that that's mm. amazing. So let's get then to the story and the characters. Um, for those who haven't yet read it, it is the story of Lex Gracie, who is the survivor of the so-called House of Horrors, where she and her siblings were imprisoned by their parents. And she is girl A, the one that got away, that finally broke out of that house, that ran for help, and saved her siblings as well as herself in the process. And this is not a book about what they went through in that house in the forefront. It, it, it's, it's a subtext to the book, but that's not what is important. This is the story of what happens to the people who were in the headlines, the great escape down the line when the media attention is gone, when life has moved on, there's another story captivating everybody and they've got to find a way to live in the world. And sadly, Abigail, I mean, the, the, the frame the story is inspired by real events and I know you are very much a fan of true crime but can you tell us a little bit more about the stories plural that inspired and and were the sort of the the, the spark for the concept of the book yeah sure um and I, I yeah I have always been interested in in true crime and I've kind of you know watched the Netflix documentaries and probably listened to the same podcasts as many people and um, many other people will have done um, and there are a few cases that I think 
I um, I was interested in because they involved because um, they involved young people. Um, they involved teenagers, and I, I think in that you know the, there are so many months and years that follow a, a particular event that affects people. Um, and there was a real kind of question for me in, in, in that, you know, if you're defined by an event like this, um, you know, how does that affect the, the rest of your life? You know, can, can you ever truly break free from it? Um, so, so one of those um, one of those cases was the West case um, in, um, in, in the UK, which I think was one of the first true crime kind of cases that attracted in, in this country a massive amount of media attention. Um, so the sort of phrase of the House of Horrors was almost coined in relation to, to that case. And, and that involved parents who had um, terribly kind of abused their children and, and uh, involved murders as well. Um, and the, there was a much more recent case as well, the Turpin family in, um, in California, which was another case where I think particular images of, um, of these children who had been subject to, to, to kind of cruelty at the hands of their parents became um, you know, very well known. So it was almost a case that these people became become known by headlo- headlines and by photographs. And often that's kind of where the story ceases to, to, to kind of dig, I guess. And yeah, I think the, the question I wanted to ask in Girl A was, well, you know, behind that photograph are all of these different lives that have been changed by, by what happened and, and then changed in turn by the press attention and, uh, and the sort of strangely kind of iconic um, meaning they, they, they've acquired. So yeah, like what, behind all of, all of the headlines and behind the pseudonyms, what what happens then? I guess was was the kind of question it, that, that prompted Girl A. It may surprise some readers who who might come to this thinking this is going to be the story of what happened inside the House of Horrors that you you tread lightly over that 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 content is there in flashback most of the time, but it's not in any level of of gory detail if I can call it that. It really is an exercise in great restraint the way you've written it. I think that there is enough suggestion and dialogue between the characters as they are trapped within that house to let you know what is going on without sort of focusing on on too much of the horrifying detail. Was that important to you that that not be the focus, that this is a book about what happens after, about the impact of trauma rather than the trauma itself? It, it was really important um, because I, I think that having Lex as um, as your kind of narrator to, to what happened in the house and, and to what happens afterwards, she is such a strong, resilient woman. And, um, you know, I, I think in, in many ways a sort of just a fantastic, um, a fantastic kind of lead character. I, I love her. And, you know, I, I think that for her, um, that the story is about how can she, um, you know, how can she kind of overcome this? You know, can she? And I think it, it potentially at the beginning of the book, Lex has almost gone too far. She's almost ruthlessly disconnected from her family. Um, but and I think the girl A is really kind of the story of how she reconnects with them, and in those relationships that she has with her brothers and sisters. Um, I think there is real kind of tenderness and, and there is real hope for, for the, you know, in different capacities, depending on the different relationship, but that there is kind of humour and, uh, and hope, I think. And that to me, it was just the more interesting story to tell, mm. um, to, to be honest. Um, I, I think that when I've read novels in the past that, that, deal, with, um, that deal with kind of traumatic events, what I always take away is the is the sort of human elements and the relationships and how characters are changed, but but not necessarily kind of violence or trauma itself. Mm. Um, and that's very much what I wanted to do in, in Girl A. So I think it's the characters that people will remember, and and that's how I hope how I hope yeah. um, it'll be. Yeah. I mean, Lex is such a 
complex character and the one thing I loved is that you know she's happy same time there's the question of well does she need resting from herself later in life she actually describes herself you write of her as a young woman when she's describing herself looking back on herself in her student days that I stank of somebody who might need saving and men like that best of all does she need saving do you think is it is it saving from her past is it saving from the person she's become because of her past uh, talk to us a little bit about the interplay of, of the rescuer who also needs rescuing yeah, I I don't think Lex um, I don't think Lex necessarily needs saving. I think that it's a way that men perceive her um, in many ways, and that she has been perceived as that. Um, that that they feel they can kind of um, I guess raise her up away from her past. Um, and I think that Lex's view is very much that that's not for anybody else to do, but her. Um, but what, what I will say is, I, I'm not sure Lex is entirely right in that regard. I think she is in respect of um, the idea that kind of these romantic relationships that she kind of has, will it, you know, she's very dismissive of the idea that a man will step forward and save her. But I, I think that she does have fantastic, tender relationships with, with, with other people in her life. Um, so with her younger sister, Evie, um, with her, um, uh, the parents who adopt her, um, you know, the parents she calls mum and dad who adopt her um, when she leaves the house, um, and with her psychologist. So I think she, I, I, actually, I should say as well, with her friends, um, you know, with, with, um, with Christopher and mm. Olivia, her kind of really good friends from, from college, so I think that Lex is somebody who um, who has a sort of fantastic support network in a way and does have these fantastic relationships that are like, you know, full of humour and full of kind of softness and kind of the, 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 the kind of pleasant mocking you can have between friends. Um, but yeah, I think the idea that any man is going to save her is probably unrealistic. <laughs> He's bitten off more than he can chew, that's for sure. I mean, you, you talk about wanting the element of hope, and really at the point that we enter the story, it, it's premised on a story of hope because what, what draws us into Girl A is where Lex, having walked away from the House of Horrors and left it behind her, is pulled back again. And I don't think it's giving away too much of the story to say she is she is faced with the passing of her mother and what to do with the house itself. And she must then reconnect with her siblings to talk about what are we going to do with this place that was for such a place of terror for us. And they decide that they will have the grand plan of turning it into a community center. Well, they decide, she decides and convinces them to join her, I think is more appropriate. Is she naive in thinking that a place that represented so much darkness and fear and horror can ever be remodeled as something that is a place of light and a place of a kind of forgetting? I mean, talk to us a little bit more about that that plan for the community centre. It's a really, really interesting question. And it, it kind of goes to the heart of, um, of something that I, always fascinates me in, in books and in real life as well, um, which is the sort of the sense of place um, and, you know, a sort of a location um, almost becoming a character in, in its own in its own right. Uh, so whether that's like, you know, Hogwarts um, in the Harry Potter books, or whether it's um, Austin Friars in in um, uh, in Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall books, you know, these buildings do kind of acquire their own character. Um, and I think that in Girl A. The House of Horrors for Lex will never be anything but that. I don't think that for, for her, she can ever disconnect that building um, and the geography of that building, different bedrooms, which, which are kind of really defined in the book, the different hallways. I think for her, that will always be kind of rooted in her childhood. But, but I think Lex also sees that other people and people in the, the community where this event took place. The building does not necessarily have that strict definition and those associations for, for them. Um, and I think that Lex sees 
sees the sort of transformation of the house into something good as being a way to kind of lift that community as well, which in itself has become defined by this famous true crime case. Um, you know, almost a way to sort of move that community on. Um, so I think that that it's a case that for Lex, I, I completely agree with you. I, I'm not sure she could ever necessarily um, see the house as anything, but it, you know, mm. but as it as it was for her, in her childhood. But I think she has a vision that other people one day might be able to. Okay. Yeah, particularly important for the town that didn't notice what was going on. As you say, they also need to, to heal from, from the role they played or rather didn't play in, in the story uh, of the history. Now, the most important thing, of course, about this plan for the community centre is that it brings Lex back into connection with all of her siblings. And they were all quite vastly different ages. You know, there were there were wide age gaps in some cases. Noah was only a baby at the time. Ethan was the eldest. They're, they're, they're spread across, you know, quite quite a broad age range. And they all have this terrible thing in common of the, the circumstances in which they grew up, um, and particularly those final years, because what started as a relatively normal childhood developed into something different. What is completely normal is the sibling rivalry. Now, Abigail, I, I think I remember you saying you're actually an only child, but... As somebody who is not, I can say that what I loved most about this book was those those barbed comments that only a sibling can make who knows which points to touch to really get you going. You captured that so wonderfully in the interplay between these siblings. Um, they've all gone on to process what happened to them very differently. So Lex is the independent, fiercely independent, resilient woman who has moved on and built a life away from it. Um, one of the siblings has made his name on trading on the story and talking about his experiences and talking about the concept of forgiveness. And that's his thing. They've all got their own way of processing it. Talk to us a little bit more about the relationships between the siblings and, and what you enjoyed most about writing there. I'm so glad they were true to life, Pippa. That's that, that's kind of key <laughs> key for me, and I'm I'm so glad that you found that. Um, I, I think that it, for me, it was, it was really the one of the great joys of writing Girl A was creating the different relationships between the different um, the different siblings. Um, so Lex has you know, incredibly um, protective, um, gentle relationship with with Evie, her younger sister. Um, but with um, with both Ethan, her older brother, and her other younger sister Delilah, um, she has these incredibly kind of contentious, um, in some cases resentful, relationships. Um, but, but even with those characters, there is this undercurrent of they've shared this childhood and they have ways of looking out for one another. I think, mm. um, for, for better or worse, at times. They are that they have a sort of sibling protectiveness over one another, um, which, which was I think something that just always fascinated me about sibling relationships. That that contrast of somebody you know driving you crazy and, and irritating you, you know, more than anybody else in the world, um, but you would also defend them against anyone outside your family. You know, you would defend them to the death at the same time. You know, only you can criticize a member of your family. Um, and that's such a strange dynamic. I think it applies to everybody that that kind of um, you know really sort of protective instinct that you have over over the people you've grown up with. Um, so so that was I think that's a really important kind of bond that the Gracie children have, uh, even when they resent one another. Yeah. Um, another thing that I think was so. Um, was so interesting in sort of writing about the about the siblings was the idea um, it, exactly as you said, Pepper, that um, they, they have a relatively normal childhood to, to an to, to an extent for a certain period of time, um, and it felt to me like there, there's such a lottery in birth order for these children in mm. in the book. Um, so Ethan and Lex, who are the, the older children, they get to go to school and, and they get to have these glimpses of normality and um, teachers who care about them and who've invested in them. 
uh, versus the children who are born kind of later on. Um, so Delilah and, and Gabriel and Evie have much less of that experience and, and much more of their childhood is lived within the House of Horrors, you know, where, as their parents become more isolated and, uh, and, and more difficult to, to, to manage in any way. And so that seemed to me something that, that felt kind of so desperately, um, uh, so just, just a toss of the dice, really. And mm. I think that's something that, that also has led to particular rivalries and particular um, resentments between the siblings, is that idea that some of them were just luckier than, than others. And, and how do you, how does that, sort of bitterness understandable bitterness look like in adulthood um as well talk to us a little bit more ab about ethan because ethan as the eldest um such a complex character somebody who at times is very hard not to judge but at other times you feel a huge amount of compassion for um the expectations that would have been on his shoulders as the eldest um, you know in, in a way lex has stepped up and stepped over Ethan by being the one who who broke out and ran and fetched help for everybody. He was the, the eldest boy. He was the eldest in the house. He had had the most freedoms to a degree. And and throughout the book, there's the sense of, well, you know, what were you doing, mate? Why, did, why weren't you breaking out the window and running for help that she grapples with as well? But to, uh, equally that, that he has gone on to build a degree of fame on the back of being boy A in his case, uh, who's been you know, made no attempt to hide who he is. He's spoken out publicly about his experiences. He, he's built his whole career on that. Tell us a little bit more about your feelings towards Ethan. I mean, did you feel judgmental towards him as you wrote him? There have been such different reactions to Ethan um, from different people, and I'll be really careful not to give away any spoilers as well um but you know I, I've sort of had everything from people being you know like oh he's you know I feel such, such sympathy for him um to people saying you know oh, he's a complete monster <laughs> you know I guess he's the worst in the novel um which, which you know I, I'm, I'm really glad that people have such strong feelings about um about a character in girl a that that to me is it is sort of absolutely great um, I actually, I probably fall disappointingly somewhere in the middle. So I'm kind of sitting on the on the fence, <laughs> in a very tedious way here. Um, I, I, um, I think as a child, I have a huge amount of sympathy for him um, because he is the first person who really tries to challenge his parents' kind of ideology. Very early on in in the book, he. He kind of tries to use his intellect and his education to, to, to really put his father in his place. And ultimately, in the Gracie household, that those are not things that are respected. Um, you know, the, the, the idea that you could have read something in a book and, um, and take that as evidence it is, is simply dismissed by, by father. Yeah. Um, so I think that Ethan is quite child he he does he does sort of attempt to um to, to, to sort of resist his parents increasingly obsessive um traits and I think that the the issue is that by the time we meet him in adulthood he he has been through sort of so much at that point uh, that he has become a very very dislikable person and he's, he's become a dislikable person, I think, in a way that I'm not sure any of us can say with great confidence that we would not have become. Because I certainly, I, I have not lived anything like the characters in Girl A um, live. And, you know, I, I just think that I'm not quite sure what I would necessarily have done to survive in, in an environment like the House of Horrors and, and like that which is set out in Girl A. Um, and it's actually one of the reasons that I wanted to structure the book so that you have um, a kind of constant uh, switching between the past and, and the present. So you know, the, the past being as, as the, um, the, the house of horrors becomes kind of more extreme and more excessive as time goes on versus Lex's kind of quest in the, 
it in the present because I think it allows you to see characters like Ethan in both lights, you know, both as a child who's desperately looking forward to going to school and is like so excited to repeat his facts of the day and uh, and really tries to fight against his father versus this adult who is actually really kind of can be quite like detestable and smug and arrogant but you know can we blame him Uh, and I think that's just an open that that's an open question but for me as well I'm I'm not sure how I feel um, quite about it. Can we blame him and perhaps wider, you know, who else is to blame? Because it's not just the parents who visited upon the children. It is who are the where are the other adults who should have noticed, who should have intervened? Um, you know, as you said, two of them at least were going to school, having interactions. Where were the teachers? Where were the friends? Where were the neighbors? Did everybody simply just look past them and not see, or did some choose to look the other way and deliberately not see? And it's not a question that's emphatically answered but certainly it's it's a question the book raises it's also the question of of how is it even possible to understand fully what another human being has been through i mean lex does choose in adulthood to tell the people that she trusts who she is and what her past is ethan literally makes a living out of doing so um I mean, is it a comment on, on on the ability to walk in another's shoes that, um, you know, you never quite know, no matter how well you know somebody, until you've walked a mile in their shoes, you, you don't know what, what informs the person they've become? It's always a question, I think, as a writer, that is essentially your, your job in a way, right? Like, you know, to walk some time in, in these characters' shoes and to try to imagine what um, what their life might be like and and how you know that journey might have affected them um but but in terms of in, in reality I don't think it's necessarily possible and I think the only thing that it, it does is sort of encourages understanding and that that's something that I always sort of hope that in all of the characters and girls um, and, and I sort of think mother and father in that in that statement that although they might not be sympathetic characters, they're kind of understandable characters. You know, there, are, there are ways you can understand um, how they have turned out the, the way they have. Um, because even Father, who is you know, obviously a, a sort of absolute monster at some points in, in Gurley, he, that he's also an incredibly pathetic character to me. Mm. Um, you know, he's a man who fails time and again in his different pursuits. And, you know, over decades, what does that do to a person? Um, so, so I think that, that kind of putting yourself in people's shoes is, is definitely is the job um, of, of the writer. You know, whatever shoes that they are and however kind of unpleasant the shoes are, um, I think that trying to make real characters from them and, and characters who feel understandable if, if never sympathetic is mm. still really crucial um and it's something that I, I think I always look for in the books that I read as well okay before we we head over to listener questions I have to ask you about the next phase of of the screen adaptation the screen rights have been acquired by Sony and um not just by Sony but there is talk of a television show to be directed by Johan Renk who did Chernobyl which uh, I know a lot of South African listeners and readers will have watched fairly recently and and loved. I mean, how exciting for you to be attached to names of that caliber. And at the same time, how scary is it to know that, again, you're handing over your baby to a different format where somebody else is going to take it and apply their vision to it in layers that you probably didn't even conceive when you were writing. Talk to us a little bit about how that's happened and how you feel about it. Yeah, it's um, it's slightly unbelievable. <laughs> I'll definitely start by saying that. Um, I so I, I actually don't have much. I don't have too much fear um, about it. I mean, I think that the sort of fortune of it is is mostly what I what I take away. Um, and yeah, the idea that I mean, the Sony team is incredible. Um, they are absolutely wonderful, and and obviously Johan Rank. Um, who has kind of been attached to to, to um, Girl A um, as a limited series 
I, I loved Chernobyl. Um, I thought it was at his, his kind of HBO limited series. I just thought it was stunning and it has that mix of kind of real bleakness and beauty that I hope exists in Girl A as well. Um, that even in the kind of most terrible landscape, you have these wonderful human relationships and you have um, people who will behave decently and, and do the right thing. I, I, that, that's what I kind of what moved me the most about um, that TV show. So, and I think that if that is brought to Girl A, it will just be it will just be amazing. Um, yeah, to see the characters on screen would. Uh, um, I, I'm a massive TV addict, so I'll probably just watch it like for the rest of my life if it happens. <laughs> Do you, I mean, do you have in mind, and I don't know how much input you'll have, uh, because I know a lot of writers have said in the past that, you know, you hand it over and that's it, the writer steps back. But I mean, do you have input on who gets cast as the characters or do you have anybody in your mind when you picture Lex? Do you see a particular actress playing her? Um, so I would be a consulting, oh, sorry, um, I would be a consulting producer, so I think basically I would have a kind of consulting role, but but I would not be writing. Um, I would not be writing a script that would certainly go to somebody who knows how to write for television, which everybody is probably really grateful for that I'm not doing that, take, taking on that role. Um, it, it's really difficult. I, I don't think I do have um, a, 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 an actress or in mind for Lex because I actually really tried in the book to, to, to resist describing her um, because I sort of, I, you know, I, I, I guess I kind of don't see it as almost being that material to her character. Um, so I'll just be sort of fascinated by how, by who is chosen and um, yeah, just the, the idea that, you know, that anybody could be playing a character it is is mind-blowing enough in itself. <laughs> what sort of timeline are we looking at? Do you know? I mean, is it, is it still very, very early days? Are we years away, months away uh, until you get, get cracking with shooting? It's still very early days. Um, so I, I think that things tend to move very slowly and very fast um, in the world of kind of TV. Um, so hopefully there will be more news that I have that I can kind of share soon. But right now, um, I don't have a timeline. Um, okay. So yeah, there's plenty of time to read the book before it happens. <laughs> <laughs> Which everybody absolutely must do. Okay. Now, speaking of the book, you're already working on your next novel, The Conspiracies, as Jennifer ma uh, mentioned. Uh, before we hand over to listener questions, uh, won't you just tell us as much as you can or as little as you want to about The Conspiracies and what it's all about? Yeah, sure. It's one of the strange things about publishing that, you know, by the time a book comes out, so Girl A obviously have kind of just coming out now, um, you, you know, you're sort of have been writing another book for it's sometimes up to a year. Um, so, so that's my kind of current obsession, I guess, you know, in a way. Um, so, so, yeah, it, it's a novel that follows two characters in the wake of an attack. Um, and one character loses her mother in, um, in this atrocity, uh, whereas another character um, believes that the whole thing is a conspiracy, um, so it's a hoax, and sets out to disprove that the event and the people associated with it um, ever existed at all. Um, and it follows those two characters um, as they get closer to revenge or redemption. Um, so yes, it's, it's been. I think it, it's it, there are similarities with Girl A um, in mm. that idea of interpretation and of you know looking at an event the way that the greasy children look at their childhood in completely different ways um, and, and having completely different kind of memories of the same of the same thing. That, that that's something that I'm always sort of slightly fascinated by. I think. Um, it's been a very strange novel to write over the last year when there's been so many kind of half-truths and mm. um, uncertainties and so many people are in isolation. And it, yeah, it, it's been sometimes a bit close to the bone, <laughs> to, to be mm. honest. 
I can't wait to read it. Uh, that's all I can say. Uh, if it's anything as good as Girl A, it's it's also going to go straight into the bestseller list. So, Abigail, at this point, I'm going to ask Jennifer to step back into the screen because we've got a couple of uh, questions coming through from members of the audience that I know she'd like to negotiate with you. Um, final word for me is thank you for an absolute thriller of a book and a deep, complex story that has lingered in my head weeks after I finished reading it. Those characters are still inhabiting uh, more space than they should be. So congratulations on an absolutely stunning debut and lovely to chat to you again. Thank you so much, Pippa. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Pippa. And feel free to jump in if any of the audience questions spark um, a question from cool. you. <laughs> yeah. um, cool. So yeah, we've got a few questions that have been coming in. Let me say the first one from Asanda who says, did you always know you wanted to be a writer? And is this the first book you've written, not published, but written? Hey, Asanda, thank you for the question. Um, uh, so this is, um, it's not the first book I've written. Um, I, I wanted to be a writer since I was a really, really small kid, like maybe six or seven. Um, but I think when I got older, I, I of thought of it more as a pipe dream like it just seemed like something that was um was kind of really unrealistic and I, I sort of thought well it's not like it's right being a writer's not like a feasible job like it doesn't really happen for anyone um and it was kind of sad because as a teenager I had written so much and that was when I wrote my first novel um and sent it off to agents and got no interest and you know kind of I sent out the I, I look back at it now and my, my emails were like really really formal and it was kind of just a bit <laughs> like difficult to look back on um but I, I also have a lot of like admiration for for myself as well at 16 17 like sending out you know a manuscript even if it wasn't very good um whereas in my 20s I sort of lost that self-belief um and so I think that that seemed to be the key thing. And it was probably my biggest error was that I didn't persevere. And I didn't write for like a decade because I sort of didn't think it was practical enough. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of still a bit sad about that. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't my first novel um, and I wanted it for ages, but I let that get away from me for a bit. Do you think that first novel will uh, be, it's, we'll see the light of day? Or is it one of those where you prefer to keep I, it in the pool? For, for the benefit of the world, I hope nobody has to see it. <laughs> <laughs> With some edits, you know, could work. <laughs> oh, oh I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure. I'm entirely sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, cool. Um, we have a question from the wonderfully named Global Style Searchlight, who says, what was the inspiration for such a complex topic? Um, it was a real it was a real mix but but I think it was the combination of um of sibling relationships and um of an interest in true crime kind of coming together um so the, the sibling relationships thing was just something I've always been interested in since I was really quite a young um young child I think that if you're if you are an only child you're such an outsider to, to these very defining relationships that your friends have and that you know your partners might have that your parents have so I was always sort of looking at, at, at the, those relationships and I, I kind of think I always wanted to create a big complicated family in in my writing I've, I've seen that even in sort of really old short stories and um so, so I think that was a big part of it um and the other part was I, I guess the 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 subject we touched on before in terms of wanting to think about true crime, but but not to focus on the crime itself, um, to, to think about um, the, the way that something affects um, other people, um, you know, the, the way that the crime lives with, with, with those involved um, many, many months and years after it takes place. Uh, and I think Girl A was almost the melding together of those of those two very different things. I think we have a related question from Asanda, which is also quite interesting. She says, she says, what kinds of books did you read as inspiration for this book? Love the book. Thank you for writing it. Thank you. 
Um, so quite a few books. Were, 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 I actually write with a big stack of books um, on my desk. And so when I'm um, when I'm ever I'm struggling a bit, you know, for, for words or to kind of create an atmosphere, I try to um, I try to sort of go back to that big stack and I'll read snippets of, of those books to try to sort of get going again. Um, and on my desk when I was writing Girl A, uh, I had um, The Road by Cormac McCarthy, uh, which is one of my favorite novels. Um, uh, it's a story about a boy and his father kind of in a very post-apocalyptic landscape. In uh, But at, at the heart of it is this kind of father-son relationship, which is so caring um, and, and deeply, deeply moving. Um, and so I turned to that, I think, for that kind of contrast of, of a very kind of memorable human relationship in a difficult landscape and in in a sort of you know, trying to find hope in the sort of devastation. Um, it, it, it's, it's a fantastic book. I kind of can't recommend it um, enough. And, and I also, um, I, I read A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara just before um, starting to write Go A. And I think that some of that probably was lingering in my mind as well. Um, and that's another book that, you know, I think it, it deals with trauma, um, but it's also a fantastic book about friendship um, and about the sort of redeeming power um, of, of human relationships when somebody's trying to, to recover from, from their childhood. So I think that was something that was probably sticking around as well. Two good recommendations. Mm. Um, here's a question from Simon who says, what has been the most surprising reader reaction to your book so far? Has anyone made an observation about the book that you hadn't thought of? Um, I think that um, the, some people's views about certain characters has surprised me in quite a kind of, um, in a way that I found fantastic. So um, Lex's ex-boyfriend, JP, um, has been just the source of so much loathing. Um, and <laughs> that surprised me in some, in some ways um, because I, you know, I, I don't think he's a likable character, but I didn't necessarily create him expecting him to be like thought of as the worst character in the book. Um, and that has been the reaction from many of my friends. They've said, like, I, I'm not going to kind of like repeat. I'm not sure what I can say, but I'm not going like, to repeat what they've said about him. Um, so, so, so that has been um, that. That's um, that's been really kind of surprising, I think, in in a great way. And in the sort of opposite, um, the kind of flip side of that is how much people have loved Delilah, um, who is a character actually I don't have loads of sympathy for, but people um, absolutely kind of adore her and think you know really kind of um, admire her pluckiness and her sort of survival instincts. And I think. Almost, it's, it's really interesting because I think you can see you know, a character through other people's eyes and it actually makes you like them more. Um, and that's been a real kind of pleasure for, for me, definitely. Do you think you'll take those reactions into your next novel? Like sort of thinking more about how people are going to perceive your characters as differently to you? Or are you just going to keep writing um, the same way? I I think I'll probably um, I think in a way I I kind of won't um, and I I think I I sort of say that um, because I think that those reactions are sort of for the for the readers but give, given the new novel is about totally different characters and and sort of totally a different um, a different story I think that it's actually kind of best to write with some degree of sort of um, oblivion. Um, mm. Because I think otherwise, you know, you would end up becoming quite self-conscious about um, about each of your characters. And I, I actually find in a way that in creating characters, likability to me is not particularly um, relevant or important. I think it's fascinating to hear whether people do or don't like characters. But I think that in, in the creating of them, what, what matters is, is that they feel real and genuine. Um, and I think if I was kind of worrying about whether they would be liked or not, I, I might lose lose some of that in a way. <laughs> yeah, the um, 
yeah, just interesting to see how your perception of them is different from the readers. And, and you know, it's just interesting. I think it sort of ties in a little bit with Bradley's question, who says, congrats on the book and the TV series news. I wondered how far you were with your second novel, which you spoke about a little bit at the end, and if you felt even more pressure with it because of the success of Girl A. How do you deal with that? Um, I, um, I had really good advice from my agent, which was to write as much of the second novel as humanly possible um, before your first novel comes out. <laughs> So, and I, I think that is absolutely great advice. So I was about 80% um, of the way through a first draft. Um, I'm now kind of 90-ish um, before Girl A was, um, was published. Um, and obviously that first draft will undergo kind of huge amounts of editing. But I think that that has at least given me some freedom to kind of write something that I think is actually very different in many ways um, without sort of thinking too much about the pressure because it felt like there wasn't any pressure there really because no one had read, well, very few people had read Girl A when, when I wrote the, the majority of it. So that was, um, I think that was a very good tactic that, um, that, 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 the, that my agent kind of passed on because I, otherwise I think that there would be a bit more pressure and yeah, I think I, I, as I said, so I try to avoid being self-conscious when writing because I think you have to be sort of more brave and, and sort of um, try not to think too much about the outside world and just focus on that kind of small world that you're creating in, in the novel. It almost seems that a lot of publishers, when they have a very successful debut novel, ask the novelist to write, a, or at least maybe encourage the novelist to write a similar kind of book next. Did you not experience that um well they haven't read it yet <laughs> so <laughs> it could all go horribly wrong okay. um, I, I think, um, it, it's um it's it's similar in sort of tone I guess and in, in maybe where you would find it in a book in a bookshop um okay. but we we went um we went into the kind of publishing meetings with the um the sort of synopsis that I I gave today um, so I think that's kind of, um, that's often the extent of what you sort of share um, with the publisher. Um, and yeah, I think that their view was that kind of that there's enough um, of the sort of similar themes and, um, and sort of, again, like the similar sort of market, I think, that, um, that hopefully it'll be okay. But we'll see. I might have an update for you next time. <laughs> um. We have a couple. We have only about a few, couple of minutes left, but I think we have time for one more question. Um, let me just flash up this comment. Who just says, "No, no question from me." I just wanted to say thank you for a brilliant book on a sensitive but important topic from Hundi. So that's nice. And so then much. a final question yeah. from Simone, who says, "I think this might be a hypothetical question in your case, but how do you deal <laughs> with negative reviews or any criticism with respect to the book?" I got here late, so apologies if this was asked already. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. It's a damn hard thing to, to deal with. Um, I actually do not read. Um, I, I don't go on Amazon and I don't go on Goodreads. Um, and I, I kind of don't really um, read reviews that I'm necessarily tagged in. Um, and that's just because I, I don't think that those reviews are for the writer. I mean, I think that they everybody is fully in their right to detest a book. You know, I've detested books. Um, and but but I don't think that um, those reviews are necessarily meant for like me. I think they're for other readers. Um, so the way that I do it, I just think the best way to sort of say stay sane um, is actually just to not really read um, negative reviews. Uh, and again, I think it's the self conscious thing and trying to avoid that um, because there's always going to yeah people who don't like. Go away and, and that's fine and they're there in their right too. But I, I think that yeah, it is a case that that's for other readers, um, but but probably not for the writer to, to look at. <laughs> that's good advice. <laughs> um Pippa, do you have any uh, final comments? I, I can't help wondering, yeah, I was going to ask if you've even had any negative reviews because I haven't seen a single one, Abigail. And I've been reading up about you solidly for about six weeks now. Um, final comment is just again to say, uh, I mean, 
I know the weight of pressure on your shoulders with the hype around this book and the hype around the, the publishers warring to get the rights to it uh, must have been huge. And I really want to say thank you for the the frank way you've spoken today about you know the process involved. And I think a lot of what you've said has has had a lot of really practical advice that aspiring writers have learned something from, let alone just enjoying the love of reading this book. So thank you very much for that as well. Um, I think that's been really, really useful as well as interesting to, to the listeners. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of PageCast. We have an incredible lineup of author interviews. So head over to our Facebook and Instagram and follow Jonathan Ball Publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes. Thanks for your interest in the story behind the story. Happy reading from everyone at PageCast.